The year 2016 saw a global changing of the guard when it comes to financial superiority. It was the first time on record that the People's Republic of China had more billionaires in the world than America. But this isn't a story about China's rapid accumulation of wealth and how it came to be. Rather, this is a story about a particular and unexpected consequence of that newfound wealth. Art and crime. In 2000, Chinese art was only 1% of the global art auction market. However, by 2014, it had risen to occupy over 27%. The continued boom in both price and demand has been staggering. In that same year of 2014, a Chinese billionaire paid $36 million at auction for a small porcelain chicken cup, only expected to fetch around $650,000. I mean, I think it's not a question of reasonable, not reasonable. This is a unique opportunity. It's an icon of Chinese art. Uh, it is worth what anyone is ready to pay for it. I think that definitely it's, a, it's an extremely good sign for the present climate. This is not an isolated case of the exorbitant amounts being paid for Chinese art. In truth, this is now a near regular occurrence. This market has also had sinister side effects. Since 2010, there's been a spate of robberies throughout Europe at some of the world's most prestigious museums, galleries, and stately homes. Some examples of the grandiose locations that these heists have taken place, Sweden's Stockholm Palace and Norway's Kode Museum were both successfully robbed in 2010. In England, the Oriental Museum at Durham University and Fitzwilliam Museum at Cambridge University were both looted in the same month of April 2012. And in 2015, the Chateau de Fontainebleau, the sprawling former royal estate just outside Paris, housing a Chinese museum created by the last Empress of France, was also stolen from. All of these thefts have two stark things in common. One, these were daring professional heists, successfully circumnavigating some of the most sophisticated defense systems in existence. And two, solely Chinese art was taken, which was stolen to order and originally heralded from the Chinese Summer Palace, the subject of a mass looting from French and English armies in 1860. The accusations as to who exactly is responsible have been leveled at opportunistic criminal gangs, shadowy rogue billionaires, and even the Chinese government itself. I'm Jake Warren, host of Undiscovered, the podcast that brings you the stories you didn't know you cared about. Stories that never quite seem to make it to the headlines. There are crimes happening so often and in such a great quantity, so it's indeed very serious and a global problem. Stories that sometimes remain a mystery without a neat or tidy ending. There is absolute certainty that Chinese artefacts are under threat. But whether, again, it's the Chinese government, I think, is, is very difficult to say. Stories that piece together the puzzle in order to paint a better picture. We take for granted that all art pieces from the Summer Palace that appear in Britain are looted in the invasion war. All right, let's get into it. 
try and understand just how big a problem criminality is in the art world, we spoke to a leading expert, a man called Dr. Noah Charney. I'm a professor of art history with a very unusual specialization. I specialize in the history of art crime, which ranges from antiquities looting, looting of art during war, art theft, to forgery and iconoclasm and vandalism. Wow. How do you become a specialist in sort of antiquity, ancient art crime? It's a very unusual path that I took. I wanted to learn about the real stories of art crimes because I'd seen films like Thomas Crown Affair and I wanted to create something that would be more realistic. And so basing it on real scholarship, I realized that there was almost nothing written and published from a scholarly perspective on art crimes specifically. And you talk about films like The Thomas Crown Affair and other sort of films, I'm thinking sort of James Bond films where there's elements of sort of rogue art crime, you know, millionaire, evil geniuses ruling the world. Is this actually something where there is a serious sort of black market in art crime with some of the most prestigious and ancient artifacts and amazing art throughout the world? Is this something that actually goes on? There's a complicated and uh, more romantic answer to your question. So the short version is art crime is a very serious problem worldwide. There are tens of thousands of reported art thefts per year. For example, 20,000 to 30,000 a year in Italy alone. And it's been called the highest grossing criminal trade behind only the drug and arms trades worldwide. Most art crime involves organized crime, and it's even a funding source for terrorist groups. So it's indeed very serious and a global problem. In truth, art crime being up there with one of the most lucrative criminal markets is not something you'd expect. But in part, is that because it feels like it's an area of criminality that isn't really spoken of? There are a couple reasons why it doesn't get quite as much coverage and is not taken quite as seriously as it might be by the general public and police and institutions alike. The main reason is it's not really something that we've been scared of. Normally, if the general public is afraid of a certain type of criminal or criminal act, then governments and police agencies have more pressure to focus on it and to counteract it. I guess that's a good way of thinking about it, actually, is that unless you've sort of got a Matisse hanging on your wall or a Ming vase hiding in your attic, you've got nothing to be afraid of, really. As a listener note, I sadly have neither of those items. The other side of it is that it's, in general a crime in which victims are elite institutions or individuals who don't tend to get a great deal of sympathy from the general public, and that trickles down to police departments and governments. And there's a sense that art is generally in the private sector, it's wealthy institutions and individuals involved, and they should be able to take care of themselves. That isn't openly spoken, but that's the general vibe that one gets. And as a result, the dedication of police resources that are state-funded tends to not be aimed in this direction, aside from a few exceptions. For example, in Italy, the Carabinieri, which is the military police, has a division for the protection of cultural heritage, which has over 300 full-time agents, and they run a database of stolen art that has over 5 million objects in it. Most countries have no dedicated art police at all. It may feel like a silly notion, the idea of an art police force. 
But the black market of art even fuels some of the worst crimes and organizations imaginable. Art crime is intrinsically linked to other types of organized crime, including the drug and arms trades and human trafficking. But if there is any benefit from the 2015 terrorist activity on the part of ISIS, one of the only benefits is that it has been so blatantly obvious that they are funding their activity through the sale of looted antiquities and, of course, attacking for iconoclastic reasons. I mean, that's fascinating. I, I will be honest with you, I didn't expect our conversation to turn towards ISIS. But is there tangible evidence, demonstrable evidence that ISIS have been involved in selling on looted antiquities to finance their uh, you know, tyranny? Yes, there's plenty of evidence that's been discovered, including books collected that highlighted certain objects that they were looking for to loot or that they had to sell. And um, there's actually a sort of legal document that is instructions for looters on how to proceed. There's also documents that suggest that they have earned in the millions in selling looted antiquities. For Dr. Charney, the claims that the Chinese state are directly behind these brazen robberies is a step too far. But creating a culture in which they may be tolerated or even encouraged is conceivable. So it's one of those things where perhaps it's not the Chinese government hiring people, but if you're a Chinese rich person, you, you know that you've got a free pass if you want to rob the world of Chinese art and bring it home, so to speak. Yes, and one thing that's important to keep in mind is when we study China, in particular with relation to art crime and art law, the rules are completely different there from just about anywhere else in the world. So I think we consider China sort of the Wild West in terms of laws related to art and cultural property. And so I believe that there would be no sanctions and that you could feel the sense of impunity if you acquire art that was knowingly stolen from a collection outside of China. And you could consider yourself doing a patriotic duty and that you're certainly not going to get into legal trouble if you have it in China. So could it be as simple as, with no fear of repercussions or reprisal, shadowy rogue figures are the true culprits? Well, when we look at an art theft, there are certain aspects of how the theft is pulled off that can indicate whether there is an organized crime group behind it and whether that group is a larger international mafia or a smaller localized group and as distinct from an individual or a pair of thieves who, from a criminological perspective, we analyze in a different way. The thefts that took place and there have been a list of them in the UK and in other countries that have focused on stealing Chinese art, are done in a manner that suggests that there's an organizing principle behind it. They're not quick smash and grabs. Um, you need to have an infrastructure in place and a plan, and there are specific items targeted. And also the modus operandi, the way that some of them were quite cinematic, rappelling down on ropes, um, evading alarm systems, escaping by speedboat. These are hallmarks of larger scale organized crime groups that likely have international connections, international offices, and have the means not only to steal the art, that's unfortunately almost the easy part, but then to smuggle it abroad and to find 
someone who's going to buy it or give you some semblance of value in return for it. And that really requires an international infrastructure. To me, it conjures up an idea of, you know, either a Pink Panther cartoon or a James Bond movie. And it seems to be incredible that this stuff actually happens in real life. It does happen in real life. It also happens all the time. Um, in most European countries, there's around a thousand a year. And those are just the ones that are reported. A lot of these thefts are really cinematic, and indeed you can see why it inspires a sort of romantic image of these gentlemen cat burglars. But the sexy ones, they, they really do happen, um, and they're not just for aesthetic, they're because major institutions have very elaborate security systems that need to be circumvented. So the manner in which these thefts take place wouldn't be too dissimilar to the plot of a Hollywood film that you've seen a dozen incarnations of. It was just before Christmas, in 2000, and people were going about their Christmas shopping when all of a sudden car bombs were set off at several points around the city of Stockholm. Police thought this was a terrorist attack and dedicated their resources to visiting the car bomb sites. And as they did so, the criminals drove up this long peninsula leading up to the National Gallery in Stockholm, which is at the end of this peninsula, in the water. And as they did so, they threw tire spikes behind the car to burst the tires of police that might follow them. And they put on uh, balaclavas and carried submachine guns and got out of the car and rushed into the museum. And it was open to the public, so it didn't have the level security it would have during hours of closure. And they shouted everyone to the floor and they ripped some paintings off the wall, and then they hopped in a speedboat that was waiting outside in the bay and made their escape. This is um, one of the most cinematic examples. In the case of Chinese art, stolen Chinese art, I can reasonably imagine, would find a willing buyer who's able to pay something approaching the full value for the repatriation of a work that they feel was looted and that they feel that they will not get into trouble and may even be praised for having essentially facilitated its repatriation to China. In part, what perhaps leads to accusations that the Chinese government is behind these heists is an organization called the Poly Group. Now, with China being a communist country, all big organizations and groups are organs of the state. With the Poly Group in particular, their mission is to travel the world, seek out and find Chinese artifacts and bring them home where they belong, to China. They dispatch treasure hunting teams, Chinese art experts to scour European museums and auction houses for art that they feel is rightfully theirs. Some who work at these foreign art institutions have even whispered accusations that polygroup treasure hunters had arrived shortly before a robbery took place, as if they were drawing up a wish list. That would be an interesting correlation to try to map out. And if you could see enough of a trend, I, I would imagine that um, a state-run organization would be more subtle than that. Um, but you never know. You'd have, to, you'd have to look at the um, black and white and chart it out. It does seem bonkers that the Chinese government would be actively copying the Nazi playbook 
from Indiana Jones's Raiders of the Lost Ark. But their desires aren't hidden. You know, I've got a couple of quotes here from the CEO of Polyculture, that state organ I mentioned a few minutes ago. And, you know, the, the CEO, a man called Jiang Yingchun, is saying things, you know, on record, we can try many ways to get the head back. The auction is just one method. And, and I guess almost putting a justification for that, saying, you know, if you kidnapped my children and you treated them well, the crime is still not forgotten or forgiven. And that's quite interesting. Yeah, there, there are lots of ways to try to get art back. I think, you know, plan X might be to try to try to get someone to steal it for you. But it shows that the government feels a sense of righteousness in recovering works of art any way they can. I mean, it, it seems to be mad. And, and I guess on the other side of this, what there is a lot of examples of is Chinese billionaires at auction spending millions and millions and millions of pounds buying Chinese artifacts and then gifting it back to the state. You know, some examples here that I have is a, a man called Liao Yiquan paying 36 million pounds for a small porcelain chicken cup. And then a few months later, paying another 45 million pounds for a Tibetan silk tapestry. And he was saying, you know, when we're young, we're indoctrinated to believe that these foreigners stole from us, you know, and that, that we should always repatriate it one day, even if we have to snatch it back. I mean, that's kind of symbolism in itself, right? That do whatever it takes to return this stuff to the homeland. Yes, that's certainly the case that the overt demonstration of patriotism in terms of buying something for the homeland, not just as a gift that seems like a frivolity, but because in doing so you're somehow righting a wrong. That's a very powerful potion. And if you have sufficient funds um, and you feel like you have the encouragement to do so, and we can only imagine what sort of reception this gentleman who bought these works of art on behalf of China got when he got back home, but I'm sure he considers it wholly worthwhile. It's a sense of national philanthropy that we tend not to have in the West. We tend to have philanthropy for specific institutions or causes or in support of a single individual. I, I can hardly imagine a private British citizen buying a, a Gainsborough painting that was for sale in Italy and then gifting it to the state. Is that because it's more politically entrenched as well? I think it's also this idea that, you know, is a remnant of communism that seems to be prevalent in the Chinese state, that um, the state is all and individual citizens, the best thing that they can do is in somehow honor the state. Not only is there a culture that arguably supports what they would determine as art repatriation rather than theft, but it is also important to note that crimes in the top end of the art world seldom get solved. We are very bad at recovering stolen art. According to some studies, as little as 1.5% of art reported stolen is recovered and criminals successfully prosecuted. So the takeaway from this, if you're listening and you're a criminal or planning on being a criminal, is get into the art heist world because that's where you're most likely to be successful. But only if you're happy sticking it on your wall and not showing anybody because you're not going to get any money for it very easily. Francis Wood is one of the world's leading authorities on the subjects of Chinese art 
history and culture. I studied Chinese a long time ago in Cambridge, taking um, particularly subjects which um, involve Chinese art, history and Chinese archaeology. And I've worked for most of my life in the British Library where I looked after Chinese collections, which included very precious collections of manuscripts and documents, including the world's earliest dated printed book, which came from China in 868 AD. Chinese and Western art are polar opposites, not only in their style, but also in their varying cultures of appreciation. It is very different. I mean, in Chinese painting has almost invariably been done in just with a plain sort of black and white wash, a rare use of colour on paper or silk, and paintings were designed to be hung up just occasionally, just for a, an evening when friends came round and then taken down again. For the Chinese, art is something to be collected, treasured, looked at occasionally and then put away again. To understand why China so desperately wants its art back, you have to look to the history books. In China, there's something that they refer to as the century of humiliation. What did that entail? Um, it's not an inaccurate description. Um, it begins with the two opium wars in the middle of the 19th century. And it's a time when China is really in decay. I mean, the central government, the Qing government, the Manchu government is absolutely at its end, tottering to to its doom, which is hastened by European incursion. You know. So the 19th and early 20th century were just a kind of long clash between China trying to keep itself to itself and the West pushing in. Um, and indeed, in the end, you know, by the early 20th century, effectively carving China up into what they call spheres of influence. And so, you know, the, the Yangtze Delta was British, basically. The south of China was French. Um, and then you have the Germans up in Shandong and so on. So China saw itself for a good hundred years as being really attacked, abused and denigrated by the West. And it wasn't until 1949 when Chairman Mao says China has stood up, you know, that um, they felt that they kind of regained their own, the possession of their own country and culture. Largely, Chinese perspective today tends to be one of outrage. They were victims of colonialism and seeing some of their finest art in the hands of those who did the colonizing, they perhaps feel those pieces actually rightfully belong to China. But is this a case of glossing over their own history? I think there's an element um, which is really a lot to do with things like the, the Cultural Revolution period in particular, 1966 to 76, that, I mean, during that time, possession of anything old was considered practically a crime against the state. And they used to say, attack the four olds. And that would include possessions. So now there's an enormous lack in China in many ways of things that were smashed a bits and got rid of during that sort of particular period. And now they have to look abroad for replacements, if you like. The iterative moment in history that stands out in particular for China as a national outrage was the sacking of their summer palace. Such is the strength of feeling that over 150 years later, after the event occurred, the grounds of the palace have still not been touched or tidied to serve as a constant reminder. Yes, the Summer Palace was sacked in 1860 by British and French troops. It was a place that 
nobody much liked anymore, even the imperial family. They had much preferred other palaces further away. So it's a bit like, you know, more like sacking Sandringham when you've only got kind of two old housekeepers in charge. Sandringham, for those who may not be up to speed on British stately homes, is one of the estates and royal residences of the Queen. Um, it wasn't full of amazing stuff and it wasn't of any great importance and it remained of no great importance until it was decided that it was politically important as a demonstration, yes, of the evil of the West and the sacking and so on. And the whole thing has been greatly exaggerated. You were to lay end to end all the artefacts, all the pots and um, ewers and jars and so on that claimed to have been sacked from the Summer Palace. Mm. You know, it would go 18 times around the world. Um, it became the fashion in Europe in the late 19th and early 20th century to say of any Chinese pot, oh, came from the Summer Palace, which is absolute rubbish. Well, there's one story from it, which I think is quite remarkable, is that supposedly they stole a Pekingese dog, called it Lutie, and gave it to Queen Victoria. Yes. That, that does kind of feel that you're uh, rubbing it in a little bit. Um, yeah, but probably Lutie did better off than being left in the, in, in the Summer Palace after the sacking. The Summer Palace and the preservation of its sacking serves as a constant reminder to the Chinese people of the perceived humiliation they endured. It is the reference point for inspiration and legitimization for the polygroup in their global quest to repatriate their art. I think that it's not just the polygroup. I mean, the polygroup is, as it were, the sort of the tip of the iceberg. The polygroup and the polygroup is the one that will say quite openly that they're trying to sort of restore their patrimony. Um, but it is true that, you know, all over China, you've got very rich people. I mean, China is now a country of many millionaires and billionaires. You know, they, there are more of them there now than there are anywhere else in the world. And they are very keen on collecting and assuming the sort of airs of a Confucian gentleman who likes to have nice things around him. So does Francis feel that the Chinese state is capable of these heart heists? I think that's fairly sort of fanciful embroidery on the possibilities. I mean, we don't know who's... We often know who carried out the heists. Mm. And these tend to be middlemen, efficient um, gangs of people who are quite good at burgling English stately homes and English museums, etc. And no doubt there are similar people all across Europe. And I think that it's fueled by this enormous increase in the prices for Chinese art, whether they're actually working directly for, you know, sinister Chinese billionaires or the Chinese government. I mean, we simply don't know. What I think makes perhaps the imagination run wild is it's not just criminality, I guess, in the sense of we're going to rob a museum and we're going to put everything in a bag where we think we can, you know, you know, flog on the black market and make some money from. It's very specific items which are stolen. And so, you know, there may be two things next to each other, one being a Chinese artifact and one being, I don't know, something from Japan. And they'll steal the Chinese one and leave the Japanese one almost as if a calling card to say, actually, what we're doing here isn't criminality. There's no question. These things are stolen to order. But whether, again, it's the Chinese government, I think, is, is very difficult to say. As was mentioned earlier, the Chinese state organization in charge of hunting down and repatriating art from around the world is the Polygroup. They have declared assets of over $95 billion 
which perhaps highlights the seriousness in which it is taken. The group typically operates quietly, intending not to draw attention. However, we managed to track down one of their lead art experts and treasure hunters, a man called Lu Yang. Now I'm working for the Yuan Mingyuan Foundation. Yuan Mingyuan is Chinese for the old summer palace. I'm responsible for fundraising to preserve the Yuan Mingyuan relics. But I've just joined the department for a short time, and they need someone to introduce the history and culture of Yuan Mingyuan. Lu Yang is no newcomer for the hunt for artifacts taken from the summer palace. I've become interested in it since I was 16 or 17. I started my treasure hunt early in Beijing and eventually made it global. He has traveled the world over in his pursuit. Yes, globally, in museums and private institutions across the world, to track down pieces originally from Yuan Mingyuan. Lu Yang has been compiling lists of the Summer Palace looted art that he seeks to reclaim. He recently travelled to London to view pieces in the Wallace Collection, a privately owned exhibition open to the public. The Wallace Collection owns two ornate Chinese cups, which were used by the emperor in the 18th century. They were taken away by a French general named Dupont. Lu Yang has already identified what he feels are stolen items, and such is the extent of his knowledge, he can prove it by matching this pair with another already in Chinese possession. There are four in total, one in Beijing's Palace Museum, one in Taipei's Palace Museum, and another two in Wallace Collection, which are presumably taken from Yuan Mingyuan. He can trace the artwork and its looting back through a French army commander present at the Summer Palace sacking. Because there was a French general named Dupont, who was the highest commander of the French invading army, and he sold the two cups when he was back to France, and there was a historical record of it, and then the British actually bought the two cups. Lu Yang's list of stolen artwork is growing too. He identified others whilst in the UK. The British Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, also have several pieces. He says coming face to face with these special pieces from China's history is a powerful experience. As a researcher, I felt differently from any other Chinese. It was like meeting an old friend. In fact, I was not super excited when I saw them, for I often saw lots of art pieces in foreign countries, but I don't like the presentation of the two cups by the Wallace Collection. It doesn't indicate its origin from the Summer Palace. It was displayed without adequate illustrations. I'm sure that nobody but me knows that it's from the Summer Palace. By not representing where the art originates from, the Wallace Collection and others are perhaps contriving to hide the past of the pieces and how they came into their possession. Some think that it's commonplace that the art pieces are gotten from the war, and some think that they now belong to Britain. Liu Yang argues that Chinese art from the Summer Palace should be treated differently. Because what happens in Summer Palace is a milestone in history. There are many oriental pieces in Europe. Some are also imperial. 
But the art pieces from Summer Palace are special. We take for granted that all art pieces from the Summer Palace appear in Britain are looted in the invasion war. They might be looted by troops, but it's not confirmed whether the museums got them in a legal way or not. Most foreigners intentionally evade mentioning the Summer Palace, but I think that's the core of all these problems. Nowadays, almost every Chinese deem that all pieces from the Summer Palace appear in foreign countries are looted, which goes to extreme in my opinion. I think we need to put things in perspective. Some pieces are surely looted directly from the Summer Palace. We went to Windsor Royal Collection as well, and photographs are not allowed there. Those pieces from the Summer Palace are looted. Liu Yang states that even the British royal family hoards stolen Chinese antiquities, accrued by illegal means. But when it comes to all Chinese art being repatriated, he doesn't go that far. First, we need to confirm its origin and sources. If they are looted from the Summer Palace, then they must return it. And China has the right to claim it. Pieces can be verified from the Summer Palace. He feels they must be sent home. However, in many cases, official verification is near impossible. If it's true, then Britain has the obligation to return them, and China is responsible to get them back. What Liu Yang doesn't stipulate is just how far China should go in order to get them back. Xiao Heisheng is a Taiwanese billionaire who was born into a family who dealt in art and antiquity. I was born in a family who runs such business. My father started to collect antiques back in the 1960s in Taipei. I assisted my father in his shop when I was in high school, which started my interest in antiques. So I decided to become an antique dealer before I graduated from high school. I set my career path much earlier than my peers, which is really lucky for me. Fortunately, I happened to catch up with the skyrocketing of the art market after the opening up and reform, so my business grew with the rise of the country. As a Taiwanese billionaire who made his money through art and antiques in general, and has purchased countless artworks for millions, how and why did he become so intently focused on the pieces from the Summer Palace? I went to a small antique firm to purchase items 10 years ago. I was intrigued by some items collected by an aristocratical family. Among those items, there was a pocket watch, which is the most interesting. When I opened it, the pocket watch, it clearly stated that it was from the old Summer Palace. So I participated in the bidding with huge interest and I luckily bought it with 11 million pounds in a mild competition. This experience began my interest in lost items of the old Summer Palace. For 11 million pounds to be described as mild competition, it seems incredible. But for a billionaire, I suppose it is a small-scale start. Xiao was then motivated to pursue other pieces from the Summer Palace wherever he could. 
art pieces from the old Summer Palace are difficult to identify without any inscription or records to clarify its source. But the inscription on the watch is a clear identification of its origin. So, after that, I gradually realized that some items can be found in Britain, France, and other places. And during the following years, I continuously encountered such items. So I gradually bought nearly 10 pieces. To own 10 or so pieces from the Summer Palace is an incredible coup. This is a place of near mythical representation, an event that highlights a humiliation to China and can only be righted by returning what was wrongfully taken. This sense of patriotic duty clearly stirred Xiao. It was agony that the old Summer Palace was destroyed by the French Anglo Alliance. Its renowned history adds its value besides its artistic value. Such items usually has high price with such importance. Xiao feels he is doing his duty in bidding for these items the world over. I have patriotism when bidding for any Chinese items of top grade. I have strong expectations to bring them back to China, especially items with important history. He understands the difficulty in the Chinese government in successfully making a legal claim for this art to be returned. So this is his personal alternative. I know what happened in the old Summer Palace is a pain for the Chinese people. But it's tricky to operate on the legal level. After all, 150 years have passed. We can show our stance by making claims, but it's difficult to recover them. Xiao recognizes that Chairman Mao's cultural revolution meant China denied itself many of its own priceless artifacts. But those days are over. During the Cultural Revolution, there has been great damage on the cultural heritage. And that might be one of the factors why foreign countries wouldn't return the antiques. Because they think they can be better preserved in foreign countries, which really makes some sense. Because during those turbulent years, China has done a terrible job in preserving them. But in his mind, and the minds of others, it is of national interest for this art to make its way home. I think most Westerners admire Chinese culture, and they can appreciate the beauty of it. Admiration might not be an accurate word, because it sounds too egotistical to say so. But the relevance for Xiao and countless others is that to merely appreciate the art isn't enough to claim ownership over it. It runs deeper. Of course, it's of great importance to me. As a Chinese, when you are appreciating the traditional arts, you have to understand the deep meaning under its facade. For example, you have to understand the meaning of a Buddha besides its workmanship. To date, many of China's cultural relics taken during war have yet to be returned and continue to be on display in foreign countries. As of April 2019, China has successfully pursued 4,000 sets of cultural relics and have signed memorandums of understanding 
with various governments to return other known items held in those countries. Also, the price of Chinese art sales around the world remains astronomical. Lu Yuang and the state-run Polygroup continue to pursue identifying and returning art and artifacts to where they deem to be their rightful homes in China. In response to the continued piracy, theft, reselling and smuggling of their cultural relics, have also announced they will not use national funds to buy such items when they appear in auction. They also state that while they can't prevent others from purchasing them, they strongly advise against it. Noah Chani says there are no recent heists to speak of. He also maintains that while there have been no new developments of who are behind these heists, it still remains unlikely that the Chinese government is directly involved. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jake Warren. Produced and mixed by Sandra Ferrari, with original theme music from Matt Huxley. And also, a big thank you to Gula Goja for her support in China, and to our voiceover support from Wei Dongling and Oliver Zhang. Thanks for listening to Undiscovered. <laughs>